I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. Part three of Holly's story was prompted by an email she sent me. She said she was distracted during our initial interview and wanted to give our listeners two stories that would serve as striking examples of the kind of abuse she endured during her marriage. Here is part three. So you did get back in touch with me and there were some other parts. So here we are today to do that. Yeah. You know, with the kids and running in and out of the room and then the dogs and everything like that, I I kept losing (laughs) train of thought and then... Uh, you did pretty well. Yeah. And then afterwards, I, I was like, oh, there was... Because I remember you were asking me about examples of the type of abuse with him. And, and I didn't really go into a lot of detail as far as some of the more upsetting or I suppose traumatizing situations that I did have with him. Mm-hmm. And there's two in particular. I think the reason why they are relative to this story is is because I told you that I do have some triggers and because uh still to this day even though I have you know been in and out of therapy for eight years these two incidences I still um if I see something on tv that even remotely resembles it I'll have an anxiety attack or something along those lines the first one and I'll just tell them chronologically basically that first one is as I told you, he was always sabotaging anything positive in my life. And I'm sure you've, you've heard that scenario more than a few times mm-hmm. in college. Yes. Uh, I was, um, I had gotten a good offer and I was really excited about it. It was to go and live in Europe and work at the European campus over there. And not only was I going to be able to work there at the campus, but I was also going to be able to attend school there and they would pay for it as long as I was working in the office. So I consider this a great opportunity. He did make me change my major around this time because I wanted to be a psychologist and he, this was three years in to the relationship. So two years into the marriage. And he told me that he was not going to be married to a psychologist. That was, (laughs) he didn't want me having that type of education. So I switched my major to um, environmental geology, I I believe it was. Do you think he didn't want you to do that because he didn't want you to have the knowledge? Or was it that he didn't want to be associated with somebody who's a psychologist or shrink or that type Mm -hmm. of thing? I mean, do you think it's more like he didn't want you to have all that extra info? Absolutely. Absolutely. He told me that I already analyzed him enough that I already thought I knew more than I should kind of thing. He thought I, I was a know-it-all because I would say things to him, you know, as I told you, I would try to encourage therapy for him and medication. And then I, of course, was always trying to do research on, I was reading books, you know, in the library, trying to figure out how to help him. And so he already thought that I was too analytical as it was. He mm. did not want me seeking out more education in psychology because he, he didn't want me being able to analyze him any more than I already was in his opinion. I think the more menacing side of that is absolutely, I'm sure he knew that if I did pursue that and go down that road and get more educated on those matters, he would have a lot less control and, and I would probably leave him because sure. I would have had yeah, everything laid out in front of me. Right. You really know the beast that you're dealing with. Yeah. Because this is a guy that, and I had told you previously, he wouldn't even let me set in on a counseling session with him because I tried to have group therapy with him. Well, uh, marriage therapy, uh, counseling, he wouldn't, um, he would only go alone. He didn't want me to be a party to that uh, with him. Well, he didn't want you to fill in the blanks. No, or, or probably hear some of the stuff he was saying. Just keep correcting him. Yes. 
or, or yeah, you're right. Or, or hearing what the psychologist had to say, you should do more of this and right. this. When he got home, you'd say, okay, time to do more of this and this. Right. And he didn't want to be held accountable for anything. So absolutely. So I did switch my um, major. I took him to Europe with me, which, you know, at 20, I was 23. I was going to turn 24 that later that year. And talk about a wonderful opportunity. I was so excited. And he seemed like he was too initially. What I didn't count on was a couple of things. Obviously, at this point, I had not realized that he had other drug, that he had addictions outside of, clearly, I knew he had a drinking problem. And I knew that he liked smoking marijuana. But I had not caught on to the fact that he was taking pills and doing cocaine, these types of things. So this is something I I think plays into his behavior when we got to Europe. Because there was a language barrier for him and he was not really eager to learn the language, I don't think he realized until he got over there that he wasn't going to have access to the types of recreational activities that he liked to do in the States. And here I am thinking in my, you know, rainbows and butterflies world that I'm going to take him over to Europe and we're going to have this great experience and go backpacking, you know, and all these wonderful things. And um, it's going to broaden his horizons. And he's, he's also going to get away from what I consider to be bad influences back home. So I get him over there and we, you know, it wasn't even about three months in or so, you know, he was, he was drinking heavily. He found like the one Irish bar in town. Everybody knows who's been to Europe. There's always an Irish bar. And of course they speak English in there. So he was spending a lot of time in the Irish bar and getting intoxicated. And I was just doing school and going to work where we lived. Obviously I was on a very limited budget from the university. So it was a very small flat and it was an an hour away from the university, but I didn't mind. It was Europe. You know, I was like just really taking it in and enjoying myself to him. The whole thing was a hassle. Yeah. Inconvenience. Exactly. And so he would spend his time at the pub and doing who knows what else. And he would come home really late at night, very intoxicated. Half the time, you know, he would wake me up and, and cause, you know, a lot of drama. And then uh, the other half of time, he would just pass out. I'd wake up, I'd go to work and just kind of attempt to ignore him. So six months into this, I decided I had a little break in school, it was spring break. And I thought, you know, I really want to show him Europe. I want him to have again, I'm, I'm back on this idea that I'm going to broaden his horizons. I'm going to open his eyes and show him love and all of these wonderful things. And he's going to change. So one of the thoughts I had was to take him downtown to this really beautiful little town that just looked like something right out of a fairy tale, the cobblestone streets, the whole thing. And it was springtime, beautiful weather, huge castle up on the hill that overlooked the town. I mean, it was just gorgeous. But it's a huge tourist attraction. And this was before Instagram was a thing. And even back then, it was one of the most, it was one of the places that most tourists went to if they were going to visit Germany, because they could get that, you know, fairy tale, but like, you know, taking a time machine back in time kind of thing. And I say this because on that day, it was packed. It's spring. It's packed with tourists, not to mention the locals. And Heidelberg is a huge college town for uh, the Deutsch. So there's tons, tons of college students as well. So it's packed. We're sitting outside where, you know, it's like a patio, you know, the whole cafe experience. I notice he keeps ordering drinks and he's getting drunk. And so I'm thinking, oh gosh. And of course I had had a conversation with him before we went to do all this, you know, and I, I said, and I told him why I wanted to do it again, you know, in the beginning of our relationship, he would act like he had all the best intentions, but of course that would completely change. Once I noticed he was, he was getting intoxicated. I started to have that dread kind of build up in me because I knew it was a ways to be able to get back home. It was almost like getting on a roller coaster. You could just feel that tick, 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 tick. And there's no way to get off. It's not like you could say, Hey, let me off the roller coaster. And that's how I started feeling. So the anxiety was building up inside of me. And then he starts making passive-aggressive, underhanded comments about the guys that I work with in the office at the college, because that was a regular thing. I was always going to cheat on him with someone. And so that's, that started. 
in the beginning, the reason I said to you prior when I was talking to you about that the first five years were the most intense physically was because I did fight back. I did voice my opinions more, things along those lines. Once he mm-hmm. broke me down and broke me down and broke me down, you know, I, I did it less and less because I realized his punishment for talking back or, or fighting back was going to always be worse. So I did, you know, get snippy with him. And I said, you know, I was trying to have a really good day. You're ruining it. You've, you've drank too much. And I'm tired of having this conversation of me potentially cheating on you or wanting to cheat on you, or I did cheat on you. I, you know, I'm like, this is, this is ridiculous. And you're ruining this day and I'm going home and you can come along or you can stay here and take the train back. And so I get up, well, I pay, I get up, I leave, I'm, I'm walking away. And of course this was the wrong thing to do. And he, he's following behind me and we're going down all these roads and everything. And I had got this, um, you know, all these little cobblestone roads to get back to where I had parked this little tiny BMW that I had bought from um, a military guy who was headed back to the States and he just didn't want to bother to have to take it back. And so I'm trying to get into this little BMW. I told him, you know, cause he, that was it. Then he got on this tangent about you're no fun. I want to stay out drinking. Let's go to this Irish bar. Cause it was open to like two, three in the morning, something like that. I'm like, no, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to go drinking with you. That sounds very scary. <laughs> I'd rather not. Well, the fact that I'm pushing back on this and I'm saying, no, I'm headed home. He gets more infuriated. So he grabs a hold of me and he says he's driving. And one, he's drunk. Two, I don't want to get in the car with him at all at this point because I can see that kind of dark look that he would get. And I started to panic. What's really relative about this particular story is looking back what really really shocked me and and obviously definitely shocked me then at the time was he was raising his voice he was he was starting to scream at me i was definitely had a a look of fear on my face and he's grabbing a hold of me and he's trying to push me into the, the passenger door because he's wanting to drive i'm fighting against this because the roads out there they're very twisty turny. And in order to get back to where our little loft was out, it was not, it's definitely with somebody like him, you know, he had only had, I think, well, I say he only had had, but at this point, I think one or two DUIs, he was a reckless driver and he drove really fast. And of course, you know, you add alcohol and stuff to that. It's just frightening. And there were tourists and people everywhere. And this particular spot that this car was parked at there were tour bus that had all lined up. They were letting people off. People were getting on because they were all headed up this walk area to get to the castle. When I'm fighting against him trying to, and he's trying to push me into the car, backhanded me. And it was not a, a slap. It was a full backhand knocked me to the concrete. And I was stunned. I mean, just like kind of seeing stars on the ground there. In my mind, I'm thinking, the cops are going to show up. The police are coming, you know, uh, people are going to break this up. They're going to ask him to step away. I mean, there's people everywhere. So as I start to gain my senses and get back onto my feet, I look around and there's people stop. They're staring right at us right there on like the promenade by the river, but they're just looking, they're just watching it happen. And I look over and I look at this tour bus that's parked like right by us oh no it's just full of tourists and they've got yeah and they're like got their little camcorders and stuff oh no and i it was just so surreal and everybody did have a look of confusion or astonishment but no one was doing anything when he had backhanded me obviously my fear had amplified because now i'm like not only am i feeling in danger about getting in the car with him as far as him driving intoxicated, him hurting us or somebody else or both. But now I'm like, he's, he, if he gets me in this car and wherever wherever we end up, he's, he's going to be attacking me physically. This is gonna be really, really bad. So I'm fighting against him. I mean, you know, the kind of thing where you're trying to do everything you can not to be put in the car. 
and he sure. gets me in into the car and no one did anything but I still thought in the back of my mind, well, somebody called the police because people had cell phones at this point. But yeah, the police didn't show up. He gets in the driver's seat and he, he proceeds to drive. He gets to this area outside of town. And I know, I know where he's parking. He's parking at this area where you kind of go up this trail. There's a clearing up there, but it's one of those places not a lot of people know about. Definitely not the tourists. There's going to be nobody up there. And it's going to be just me and him in the woods. And I'm, I'm having this real thought of he could kill me up there. Like I, I, you know, I'm just like this, this is, I mean, my, my fear factor was just like off the charts and I was just kind of working on adrenaline at this point. He comes around to the, the passenger side. And again, he's forcing me out of the car. I'm fighting because I don't want to get out of the car. I'm afraid of him taking me up there. Obviously he wins. He gets me up there. Yeah. He uh, straddles me and he holds my hands down over my head and he just starts spitting directly onto my face. The spitting thing, you know, it's really odd because obviously he hit me numerous times. But there was something about this when he would spit on me. There's something about that. That's still something that's a trigger for me if I see it or if I think about it. It's still really, I don't know. I don't know. It's just so degrading. I know hitting is as well, but there's just something about that. Like you feel less than human when someone is spitting on you. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's spitting on me and then he gets off. He rolls over off of me. and But I'm, I'm not moving at this point because now I've gone into what I called back then possum. So I knew, I was like, if I keep fighting him, if I keep, if I say anything, he's going to be worse. We're out here alone. No one's coming to help me. So I just, I laid there and I did not move. And then he starts punching me in my thighs, which was his favorite place to punch me. And I will say he was punching me so hard that I limped just trying to get upstairs for, God, it seemed like a couple of months because I think there was damage in my muscle from it. And it looked like I had been in a car wreck from it. Yeah, you get those deep injuries. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, It it was bad. And of course I couldn't, play possum when he's punching me. So I'm, you know, I'm screaming, I'm crying. And I started to hyperventilate, you know, just choking on, on sobs basically. And he, he, then he stops. And this was the part that I think is so telling about someone like him. He stops, he rolls back over to his side of, you know, beside me, just pops his knees up and he kind of rests his uh, forearms on his knees and he just looks off into, you know, this, it was like all of a sudden he was just calm and serene. And it was like, all of a sudden he's enjoying the spring day and the beautiful trees and as if nothing that just happened happened. Like he's at peace now. It was really, yeah, it was like just flipping a switch. And of course I'm still laying there. Because I will, and also I'm, I'm crying, you know, but I'm also trying to hold back. Like, I don't want to be too loud because that always seemed to anger him if I cried loudly. And so I'm just kind of choking on my sobs, laying there beside him. And this is when he says to me, I should never have gotten involved with a girl like you. And even in that moment, I thought, what on earth? He's saying to me, I should have never have gotten involved with a girl like you. And without, you know, me needing to ask, like, what on earth do you mean by that? He goes, you know, when I first met you, I didn't think you were going to be this difficult. So, you know, that night he met me where I was, you know, just in blue jeans and no makeup on kind of thing. He goes, but then when you came back from that flight attendant, job he's like I could tell you were going to be high maintenance and he goes you always you know you're always telling me what to do you're always disrespecting me you're always wanting me to change I'm tired of having to change for you and he's like you're spoiled rotten he called me a stuck-up bitch he's saying that my parents gave me everything I ever wanted I've never known any hardships and he's not changing anymore for me he wished he would have stayed in California with the other girl 
because, and he, he did tell me, you know, that's why he left to California with that other girl was because she was going to be easier. And he had realized that I was going to be too much work. And that really infuriated him. Of course, at the moment, I'm taking all of this in, you know, and I'm making mental notes and, and, and trying to even just wrap my mind around what is coming out of his mouth. But later on, I look back on that and I'm like, wow. And, and for him to admit that out loud, I really think it's a good example as to how these people think. I always wanted to believe that some of the stuff he did was not purposeful that maybe it was just the environment he was raised in. And then of course, you know, maybe a propensity towards mental illness plus environment, you know, nature versus nurture type of thing. Mm -hmm. That was just basically him admitting to me that I am aware of what I am doing and you're too much work and you're, you know, and you need to stop asking questions and stop asking me to be a better person. So that was a wake up call. Great piece of your story that people need to hear. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you would ask me if I could say anything to anybody like advice wise, you know, and I said the thing about reporting, which, you know, I should have done, but most, I guess the best piece of advice that I could give is no matter how that heartbreak feels getting away from them or how in love you think you are with them, or, or you're actually feeling this. Right. And that's what kept me around for a long time. So I was holding on to everything good about him and, and holding on to it for dear life. But these people, they don't, they, they really don't have good intentions. They will never have good intentions. That's never going to happen. It doesn't matter what you do. They are still them. They will always be them. And that will never change. And you being with them, it's, it's, it, they're still them, regardless of if you're there or not. You're not going to save them. You're not going to fix them. And they don't want to be fixed, I think, moreover. Well, they don't see themselves as the problem. So why no. are they going to fix themselves? Right. So there's no, there's, you know, we have like this practical reasoning, you know, we're trying to figure them out. What's not going on with them? You know, so it's just a huge waste of time. You can't take the way you think and try to understand the way they think because. Yeah, it's impossible. You know, it's a different language. Literally, literally. So that was the point behind that story. And then this next one, this was five years in. I had stopped wanting to go anywhere with him for obvious reasons. Was this before or after the other story? So this is after. This is after. Really? The, it's after? Yeah. This is after that incident. Wow. Um, you really hung in there. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I tried really hard. And a, a sad part about it was a pride. And that's, again, something that I really struggled with after I left him because I was like, man, I was so prideful. Pride meaning how that would look to other people? <sighs> yeah. I uh, The divorce. I had it in my head that if you married somebody, you stuck it out. I don't know why I, you know, but I, I had a lot. I mean, I'll be very honest when that, when that relationship was over, I actually had a lot of self-loathing because I was just so, I was like, okay, so I was prideful. I didn't want to leave him because I was afraid of how that would look and getting a divorce. Mm -hmm. But this is a person who was doing such horrible things to me it shouldn't have mattered if anything yes. i my pride should have been on the opposite if anything my pride should have been leaving him you know that hey I, I left this person early on i didn't stick it out i didn't try to help him mm -hmm. but these people are very good about giving you reasons to 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 stay they're very good too about breaking you down enough that you think you're not worth anything and that if you leave your damaged goods how are you going to explain this to someone else you know i didn't tell my husband who i have now any real details about my ex for months you know i had to i it was i was too embarrassed you know so yeah yeah i didn't want anybody to know you know like as far as my family and stuff like that right how deeply deeply bad it is yeah. A little bad is every marriage. Right. Deeply bad. Deeply bad. Yeah. Grand Canyon bad is bad. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So the second story. So I had stopped going places with him, obviously because of the fact that I did not trust him. There was a lot of fear with the idea of going someplace with him and being stuck with him in some kind of situation, you know, because at this point 
I had had several experiences, the, the last story being one of them. We were almost living separate lives. It was, I was doing work and coming home and he was just going and doing whatever he wanted. But I obviously had strict rules about my life where he just did what he wanted. But, mm -hmm. but you know, it was just easier that way. So he invited me to go on a camping trip with him and his friends. It was mostly guys, but they were, a couple of them were bringing their girlfriends or, you know, wives. So I thought, okay, well, you know, it should be okay. It was a three day weekend kind of situation. And I think there had been enough time there between like the last episode with him that I, I had a false sense of security that it would be all right. And so we go out to this very secluded, remote camping ground. It's outside of Lake of the Ozarks. So it's in the Ozarks in Missouri. So very remote. I mean, there's like nothing out there. Um, we'd have to drive probably a good 40 minutes to an hour from this campground just to get to a small little, you know, kind of one of those places where you blink and you've already passed it. It doesn't even have a stoplight kind of town. But it was one of those three-day things where they take you down the river and rafts and canoes and you camp and then, you know, they bring you back kind of thing. So I thought that sounded quite fun, but it turned into, you know, a living nightmare. So he, he started drinking. He was drinking way too much. Of course, looking back, I'm sure drugs were involved. Clearly he knew not to do that in front of me but i'm sure when he was wandering off with his friends and stuff like that who knows i'm assuming uppers or pills or or something because he ended up in a, a belligerent extremely aggravated state and i had told you he was very physical and he would he would get into physical confrontations with men and i had seen him do that and there were of course a lot of other young men around who were also on this trip. So I was just kind of keeping my head down and staying with the women. And I thought I wasn't even on his same raft, you know, like I was just keeping a distance and letting him, you know, watching this play out. I thought if I kept my head down, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't, he wouldn't zero in on me and take everything out on me. So we get back to the campground and of course he spent all day getting you know, more and more intoxicated. And he's becoming, you know, frightening at this point. I'm trying to keep my head down. We get where we're going to camp. I can tell he's, he's, again, that whole roller coaster, tick, 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 at the precipice and there's no getting off. But he hasn't set his sights on me yet. And uh, so I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, at least that's good. Maybe he'll just go pass out in the tent or something. Well, I had a, a vehicle uh, that he insisted on driving out there because obviously, as I said, I pay for everything. So I had bought him a new truck and this truck was only two weeks old. And I actually remember saying to him, you know, I really don't want to drive that truck out there because, you know, gravel roads, all these kinds of things. It's brand new. We can just take the car. But obviously he wanted to show that truck off to his friends. So he insisted on driving that out there. So we're out there. He says he's going to get in the truck and drive down to the general store and get some more beer. I'm like, no, no, we're not doing that for obvious reasons, reasons I'm sure I don't even have to explain. But now his attention's on me because I've said no, that he can't drive the truck. And so he becomes irate. And now there were families also on this trip. And of course, when you're there with your family, the last thing you want to see is some man screaming and yelling obscenities and all of these things. So they're all looking and watching, you know, people are questioning things. This was a big kind of river resort situation. So they did have security. He tells me to go F myself and he grabs the keys and he gets in the truck and a couple of his friends jump in it with him of how upset he was with me he turns around where our tent is and it's all gravel right there where the, you could park the vehicles and he floors it well it shoots that gravel up and it hits numerous people including myself and some of them were families with little kids 
you know, done deal at this point. So obviously the families are furious. I'm horribly embarrassing. I'm, you know, apologizing profusely. Security shows up. I said, you know, he went down to the general store. They had like a little like general store situation where you, you could like get six or 12 packs and ice, that kind of thing. So he comes back not that long later and security just waited for him. Well, I told you with, with cops, he was very well behaved, but with security guards, he treated them like they were like a, a regular guy. You know, he just didn't, he didn't see them as authority at all. So he's in their face. I mean, not even, you know, leaving no room. He's bumping his chest up against them. He's doing that whole like macho man display and these guys were young they looked really scared the whole thing was obviously just awful and they had tasers and he's uh he's flailing around in front of them he's you know come on hit me he's trying to you know get them to attack him <laughs> and they're saying you need to leave you're not allowed here any any longer of course this makes him even more irate and the guy ends up having to threaten him with the taser like it's actually gotten to that point and honestly I don't blame them because he was very very scary and then they say to him they go if you don't leave not only are we going to taser you right now but we're going to call the police this whole time his friends are just watching and some of them were laughing okay it wasn't until they said we're going to call the cops that his friend said oh yeah you got to go dude because they didn't want the cops around his friends were those type of people right this really worries me because he can't drive out of there he's blackout nearly and on you know all kinds of stuff i'm assuming i knew i was gonna have to drive i did look at one of his friends who was actually his best man at the wedding and i said do you would you mind just taking him back the next big town for him to be able to stay at was three and a half hours away and his friends his friend knew him very well his friend had seen him do all kinds of really awful stuff and he said hell no I'm not I'm not getting in the car with him I I get his point but then also it's kind of like yeah but you also spend a lot of time with this person and you also help him with his behavior and you you know I mean it's like so you want his wife to get in a vehicle with him and you know how he's going to behave with me but regardless I end up in the vehicle with them um, I'm doing my possum thing again. I'm just, you know, I'm looking straight ahead. I'm making no eye contact. I, I'm not looking at him. I'm just like, I'm driving. And I'm thinking, be very, very quiet. Don't say anything. Just like, he, maybe he'll forget. He'll pass out like in the, the, you know, beside me or something. But he's over there. He's yelling. He's screaming. And he starts punching into the dash of this brand new truck, you know, denting the dash all up. And of course, my anxieties worse and worse and I'm having tears you know tears are like rolling down my face but I'm trying not to do like a loud cry again because that that always angered him but I know I know he's instead of calming down he's he's escalating more and I'm alone with him in a truck in the Ozarks on this twisty turny road in a dense forest again you know really really bad situation for me he says to me pull over and ooh, at this point we're I've been driving for about 30 minutes. So we're far enough from that campground and, and any, any other kind of civilization that it would take me a couple of hours to walk anywhere from there. And I didn't know the area. So I only had flip-flops on, you know, little shorts. I still have my bathing suit on underneath a tank top. And I said, of course, I go, why? Why am I pulling over? He goes, I'm driving. And I'm like, I'm like, no. No, you're not. And again, this is one of those situations where I'm put in this position where I have to say no. I, you know, no, you're not driving on a twisty turning road in the Ozarks. You know, I, this whole thing, you're blackout. I, I'm like, I don't, you're not driving. And of course, he says a lot of uh, really scary things to me. And then he grabs a hold of the wheel, it jerks me to the side. I, I slam on the brakes because, you know, it is windy and stuff. And he punches me, you know, into my thigh. And then uh, and then he grabs a hold of the side of my head and he smashes me into the, the window. And he says, I'm, I'm fine. You know, all kinds of, you know, just insert cuss words and that he's driving. 
so I make this decision in my head, you know, it's like split second kind of decision, but my fight or flight had kicked in. And I was like, uh, I thought every part of this is not going to end well for me. So I was like, I got to run when I get out of the car and we switch. And so I, I get out, but I knew I couldn't reach for my purse and it had my cell phone in it because I knew if he saw me grab my purse, he was going to question that. So I thought I could run into the forest, hide, and then it would take me a couple of hours to get back to that campground, but I could have them. This was actually one of those times where I was like, I'm going to have, uh, I'll have them call the police. You know, like I actually was just like, I'm done. I, you know, I'll call it, call the police, whatever. I just, I'm going to be in this vehicle with this, this insane person. I get out and as we're switching across, you know, to he's coming around and I'm coming around. I think he saw something there on my face because I'm gauging when I can run and get ahead of him enough. And I thought he was intoxicated enough that I could maybe get a jump on him with that. And as he's passing me, he looks at me and he says, you better not run, bitch. And I ran and I run into this forest. Well, for anybody who's familiar with Missouri and the forest, it's not like, you know, the forest you see like on the coast in California and stuff like that, where or even in Europe where you can wander through the forest and, you know, it's got a lot of underbrush. It's very condensed. It's just, it's not something you can just freely run through. And obviously I'm finding this out the hard way. So within a couple of minutes, it's ripping off my flip-flops. Those are long gone. And of course, because I hardly had any clothes on, I mean, I'm being cut up and, you know, sliced every which way and being hit by branches. But because I had this adrenaline pumping through me, I wasn't aware of it at the time. I was literally, in my opinion, running for my life. I could hear him behind me. He's screaming my name. And, and obviously everything that's coming out of his mouth is terrifying. And I'm thinking, you know, I really was in that moment. I really did feel like I was running for my life because I, I just thought if he gets a hold of me, especially now that I've ran, this, this is so bad for me. So I just kept running and running. What I heard behind me was him tripping and stuff. He was getting caught up and stuff, but because his equilibrium was off and stuff, he was falling. So I was getting more and more ahead of him. So I get to this point where there's a, just a bunch of debris and underbrush and I just crawled in underneath that debris and underbrush. And I just, my heart's pounding through my chest, you know, that whole scenario, you know, that people explain when you know, you're just, you're just so full of fear, but I was afraid to even breathe. And I kept hearing him, you know, rummaging around, screaming my name, of course, saying all kinds of very scary stuff, which, you know, like, why would you come out? Why would you be like, yeah, I'm right here, you know, when someone's saying these types of things to you. So I just stayed put. Minutes and minutes and minutes went by. And then finally, I, I don't hear him anymore. And I hear that truck start up. But then I keep hearing it coming, you know, it would go away. And then I'd hear it come back and then it'd go away and I'd hear it come back. Well, finally, after a while, I didn't hear it at all. I thought, okay, so I kind of knew my direction, you know, where I, the way back. And I thought it would be safest for me to just stay in the woods and try to follow that river back to where that campground was. And so I'm walking, but at this point, now I realize my feet are cut up. I'm bruised. I'm in pain. And it's later in the afternoon, the sun's going down. So I'm starting to feel like a lot of anxiety here in the sense of I'm out here with nothing. And it had been a, an hour or so at this point. So I thought, I mean, I'm assuming it, it had been a while. And so I'm, I'm, I think at this point, because I have not heard the truck that he, who knows where he went, but I don't even care, you know, and I think it's safe for me to get back to the road. So at least I'm walking on the asphalt at this point and it wouldn't be as painful for my feet so I get back onto the asphalt and I'm walking down the asphalt you know and I'm well <laughs> limping down the asphalt and I'm I'm you know just thinking to myself just get there just get there and I hear that truck and I could hear it coming up from behind me but there's that small part of me where I'm thinking please just let this be some other person out here I mean tons of trucks in that area but no, it was him. It was him. He rolls down at the window 
I didn't even look at him. I just kept looking straight. He says he's sorry. And he's like, just get in the, get in the car. I'm sorry. And I did. And he said, you can, it was like not even 10 minutes. And he goes, you can drive. At this point, I just got in to drive and he, he just passed out. He did not wake up until the next day at two o'clock. I left him. Yeah, I left him in that truck. Like when we got to where we were going, I, I didn't even, I just left him in the truck and he woke up in the truck and then came in around two in the afternoon. He said he didn't remember any of it. And I find that hard to believe. Maybe, maybe some of it because he was so intoxicated and on God only knows what, but that whole afternoon, that whole ordeal, I just find it very hard to believe that he does not remember any of that. But yeah, his excuse was, I don't remember any of it. So he didn't, he apologized to me when I got into the truck, when he found me on the side of the road. And he said, I'm sorry that I did that. I'm sorry that it scared you so much that you thought you needed to run. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, that was the only thing I got out of him. But outside of that, there was no apologies about any of that. Because in his opinion, he didn't remember doing it. As far as he was concerned, he didn't do any of it. It was just my story. And still to this day, if I'm watching something and, you know, it's so odd and I know that you'll relate to this, but until you have had something traumatic happen in your life, there's so much stuff you're not, you don't think about, you don't, you're not really aware about it. Or I don't know, you don't, you don't overthink a lot of things. And then once something traumatic has happened to you, it's like you see it everywhere. And I never realized, you know, how often there's scenes where women are being chased through woods or being, you know, running for their lives and the man's behind them screaming until I experienced that. And now it's like, I feel like it's in, you know, I'm like, every time I, you know, I'm trying to watch something, a scene like that happens at least, you know, every couple of months. And then I, you know, have this anxiety attack because I, you know, my heart starts pumping. I'm, I feel like I'm there. And then I have, to, I have to pull myself out of this idea that, okay, well, this isn't happening to me. This is just a TV show or a movie or whatever. But yeah, that, that one always will stick with me. You know, those two stories of, of examples of, of what happened. And then mostly, I think it is interesting, you know, both of these scenarios happened in front of people initially, you know. Um, and I'm not saying that people should jump in and... <laughs> pull, pull, you know, people apart. You don't know like how that person's going to react to you or if they have a weapon. I mean, I understand, but I think, um, I think maybe just at least call the police. You know, when I got in that truck with him, I was, I was crying. I was, I was scared. I know that those security guys saw that. And I know that everybody at that campground saw it. And I was driving off with a, a maniac, a wild animal in my car, you know, in that truck. And you know, so I'm always that person that puts myself in other people's shoes. And that part of me does think, you know, oh, I, I, I understand why no one got involved. But even if you don't want to get involved, call the police because you don't know what's going to happen to that woman when you see the truck drive off with her. I mean, that scenario that played out, it could have turned deadly or, or let alone just him taking control of the vehicle. And, you know, he was driving up and down that road. He could have hurt someone else the, the whole thing about it you know the, the big thing about those two stories is just like if I ever see anything even remotely similar to something like that I hope I never do but but yeah call the police even if you don't want to get involved I think there's just so many times that you know even in apartments that like we took our our 19 year old for her birthday lunch and they were I was like how's your new apartment and everything and she said that her and her boyfriend had heard the girl upstairs with her boyfriend and she was screaming. It was late at night and it concerned my daughter enough that her boyfriend went upstairs and knocked on his door and asked if everything was okay. And so we're having this conversation and I, I looked at them both and I said, if that, if you hear that again, you need to call the police. Don't go up to the door, just call the police. Because I said, who answered the door? He said, well, her boyfriend did. And I said, but you didn't see her. And he's telling you everything's okay. 
mm-hmm. you know, and I'm like, and if it, it, you know, and if it was a scream that woke you up, you know, out of a dead sleep, I'm like, please just call the police next time. And you can, you know, you can be anonymous, you know, and particularly in apartments, you can hear a lot. And when you think of how often you don't call any, okay, so maybe it didn't end in death, but clearly somebody's being hurt or, or punched or beat. You know, that person who called the police on my, my ex when we were in New Jersey and he was punching me and I was screaming, please help, please stop. You know, I'm very thankful for that person. I hoped that things would have turned out differently when the cops did arrive, but at least it stopped it. It broke it up at that time. I did listen to some crime stuff when I first got into podcasts and I was like, okay, this is, this is not good for me. So I, I started, that's when I found, you know, um, I was looking into self-help kind of stuff. And that's when I started stumbling upon like your podcast and stuff. And, and it just, it was almost like my therapy in a sense, because it does make you go there in your mind. You are reliving some of the things that are happening to you by listening to the other survivors. You're also listening to somebody who has gone through things that are similar to you. So you're having this bond with somebody you you don't even know. Yeah. And, and so it's almost like this group therapy. And because you are exposing yourself to it and you're listening to it and you're hearing how they got through it or, or and their advice, these kinds of things, I found that it, it really did help me, you know, get past a lot of my triggers, a lot of my obsessive compulsive thoughts, you know, you know, stuff that just wasn't healthy for me as far as what happened to me in the past. Yeah. And, and it's just nice to hear, you know, in the end, these people be able to say, you know, it's over, it's done. And this is my life now. Well, you're doing good things. You're doing good things. And, you know, I was, I was thinking when I read your book and, and all of this, you know, these, this would be something that I, you know, obviously talk to my daughter with and even my son, you know, because it applies to both sexes, right? I mean, you talked about that in your book that, you know, men come across women with this type of behavior, you know, it happens to a lot of people. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, Holly, I appreciate you putting this whole thing together and telling it so clearly. I think there's just so much great advice in here. The thing that's working so well with this When Dating Hurts podcast is hearing from real people telling real stories that are hard to listen to, but there's a lot of great information in there. And whether it's things they should do or things that they need to think about stopping, I think all of that is steps in the right direction, you know, that victims need to hear from survivors like you. And I know from correspondence that survivors like to hear other survivors Oftentimes, just to reinforce the fact they weren't the only ones to go through something like this. And most of the time, they struggled to get away. You know, there's a statistic I hear from everyone, which is that people who are being abused, people in domestic violence situations, Mm -hmm. it takes on average seven times leaving before you finally leave for the last time. I'm not sure where that number came from, but anybody who really knows the subject will tell you, yeah, on average, it's about seven times. And I will say, thank you so much for what you are doing because it is podcasts like yours that really helped me heal. I know that is so strange to say, but it's really true. It was hearing other people talk about this in a safe place and feeling that connection that helped me heal. Absolutely. So thank you. Uh, that's wonderful to hear that. You know, when I first set out with this podcast, it was to just inform people about the realities of domestic violence and dating violence and have on some people who are well-trained or well-experienced mm-hmm. authorities, people in law enforcement, people from domestic violence agencies. And finally, it kind of made its way to where we are now, where it's mostly survivors telling their stories. It's one thing to to talk about what people have pieced together from hearing other people's stories and nothing to hear the actual story itself is what I'm saying. Right. And I think that it brings everybody very close to it. You can feel it every step of the way. And the whole time listening to you, I'm just waiting for the moment where you get your way out of that prison that you are in your life. So right. I'm so happy for you now. You're happily married. You have a couple of little kids running around, yeah. very cute. We've heard <laughs> from them a fair amount. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I finished my degree and everything. So I think that's the other thing too. When you do get out of something like this, the possibilities are endless. 
I don't think everybody who goes through things like this at the time, that getting away from somebody like that, how much your life just brightens. There's so many more opportunities for you when you don't have someone like that in your life. And the thing is, too, with your story is that what takes place often happens little by little. Right. You're slowly drawn into a place that you can't figure out a way to get out and you just become dizzied by what's going on. You can't really think straight. You're just reacting to what's in front of you and tomorrow mm -hmm. get up and do the same thing all over again Exactly. until it gets bad enough or you finally decide it's bad enough that you have to now take steps. And, and even then it's not easy. Mm -mm. And that's why we talk about the warning signs so that people don't get that deep ever. You know, when you think, wow, that sounds like what I've heard about. I've heard these stories. I'm not sticking around to see as we make our way deeper and deeper. I'm going to get out like those everybody talks about on the When Dating Hurts podcast. So many people say, I wish I'd gotten out earlier. Well, get out earlier. I mean, that's what yeah, we're talking about here. Absolutely. Get out early. Get the restraining order. <laughs> yeah. If it starts to feel bad, trust your feelings. Like, take right. those steps. Get help. Call a domestic violence agency. Have a chat. Do all of it. I, I really wish I would have. Yeah. Yes, me too. Thank you for Thank sharing. You. It's a very generous effort that you put out. Very unselfish. And... To you as well. <laughs> Thank you. This concludes Holly's story. These stories make for difficult listening, but they also represent valuable lessons in what can and what does happen sometimes. Learn the warning signs of an abusive relationship. The interest we are seeing far exceeds all expectations we had. The more who listen, the more who better understand domestic violence. We see now that When Dating Hurts has become the platform where dating and domestic abuse survivors can tell their entire stories from those early days when they thought it was love through the horrific nightmarish times of emotional manipulation, power and control tactics, and sometimes devastating physical violence. It sneaks up on people. That's how domestic violence traps people. I want to give extra emphatic thanks to the survivors who have come to us and told us in great detail their personal stories of abuse. These generous survivors have afforded us open access into the worst times they have ever endured. Their lives were made miserable by domineering abusers, people who were relentless in the calculated evil they perpetrated specifically to devise invisible prisons around those they told they loved. These stories, although challenging to listen to, are made bearable because we know that each of the survivors will eventually transition from a victim to a survivor. We see the sheer determination and immense courage it sometimes takes for a person to regain freedom. It's important to know that victims can always get help Victims can always get out, and victims can become survivors. Okay, just a quick reminder, the When Dating Hurts book is available on Amazon. It's in paperback and ebook and audiobook forms. If you're a survivor and you have a story we need to hear, please contact me at Bill Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. Thank you for listening.